Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode three of the Shameless Picture Show podcast. I'm your host, Michael Byers, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Nick Richards. Today, we are going to be talking about William Friedkin's early 70s horror film, The Exorcist. The film, written by P- William Peter Blatty, was based on a novel by the same name, also written by Blatty. The film tells a story loosely based on real events about a young girl's possession by what her mother believes to be Satan himself. The young girl, Regan McNeil, was played by 14-year-old actress Linda Blair. Her performance was so impactful that she'd go on to be nominated for the Academy Award that same year. To this day, many consider The Exorcist to be one of the scariest films of all time because of its atmosphere, its religious iconography, and the frightening visuals. Somewhere between science and superstition, there is another world. The world of darkness. expected it. Nobody believed it. And nothing could stop it. There are no experts. You probably know as much about possession as most priests. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. Now, I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that! The one hope. The only hope. The exorcist. This film was on my shame list for this week, so I guess I should begin with my thoughts. And I will say that while I enjoyed the film, and I knew after pretty much as soon as the movie ended, I'll be, I thought, this is a movie I'm going to have to rewatch. <laughs> um, I feel like hype and not having seen it at a tender age, especially when I was religious, may have ruined it for me because I didn't find it all that scary. Okay. And that's my first analysis. Like there, and it's nothing necessarily that William Friedkin did wrong. And a lot of it is probably just because of the style of filmmaking from the seventies. But I watched it. And I just there was I was unnerved, and I I, I was kind of grossed out. But there was not many parts where I was really scared. I, it's interesting that you had that reaction because my wife, who is not religious at all. Um, is incredibly scared by this film and movies like The Omen that really speak to her despite a lack of religious background. That's actually really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, any idea why Does she she elaborated at all? Uh, no. Um, I, my guess is if if you were to you know sit down with a very expensive shrink, there would be some you know fears of. You know that that because she's not religious, but like her mom was, and and some other family members, that what if she's wrong, 
then she's going to be, you know, on the bad side of all of this. And that's a shot in the dark, but that's and, that, and that's my actually, quick and dirty answer. That's actually a really fascinating, uh, fascinating thought process on it because, like, I think it can go. It goes without saying that this film in itself is about that topic there, right there, amongst many other things. But I feel like the idea that is God real, and if so, why would He do this? And because this happened, is God real? Is you know the whole. The whole point of it, it's actually kind of, it's similar to um, my wife, Amanda, where um, uh, we've, when we've, we first got together, we were talking about ghosts and belief and everything. And she was like, um, when I met her, I w- she said she, it's not necessarily that she didn't believe in ghosts. She just didn't want to be proven right. She, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so she doesn't like, she doesn't want to have that experience that makes it, hundred percent unanimous oh shit this is real yeah it's i think it's really easy to dismiss things like zombies and vampires as fiction but because religion right complete (laughs) fallacies like (laughs) us and our damn liberal agendas (laughs) so fake things like that are easy to dismiss but uh because religion does have such a strong hold on our society in general and i don't mean hold seem to have a negative subtext and i don't mean to imply that but it's it's very prevalent and a lot of people feel that it's very real so it's a little less easy to dismiss uh demons that's actually really interesting too because um that's one thing i have to say i appreciate about this film because um you know when i was when i was when i was a kid i i i I was grew i grew up religious uh you know Catholicism and whatnot. I did my first communion, my first confession. I did all that stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, when I got older, especially in high school, um, it became easy to take shots at religion. It became easy to take shots at Christians and Catholics and people of faith. And it's funny, even at that time when I, I didn't really believe, I, you know, I kind of lost my faith a while ago, um, I found myself always defending you know, like if like some of my like atheist friends would, would be poking fun, I'd find myself defending the idea of faith and religion, and that's one thing I like that this movie did. This movie didn't feel the need to take shots at it. I feel like it treated the idea of um of God and w- whether or not one can lose their faith uh, very respectfully. Because to my knowledge, I, I looked it up quickly before we started. Uh, William Friedkin uh, wasn't. He wasn't like Catholic. Uh, he wasn't really super religious at all. He's fascinated by religion, like, um, but he's not like a practicing Catholic. I think uh, the 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 author of the book, William Peter Blatty, his mom was. But uh, it's it's interesting that you know it wasn't more of an angsty type of type of work. Sure, you. I I think in a lot of films, it's very easy to classify religion and religious characters as one of two uh, uh, paradigms. Either the we're right and everyone else is wrong, or we're overbearing and and aggressively incorrect. Where here we see um, 
members of the clergy who are very human and are are they're they're not holier than thou if you'll pardon the expression um they're <laughs> they're they're grappling with the same things that a lot of believers and and on the fence you know believer non-believers grapple with yeah and actually i think i think the idea of faith we're jumping right in on this uh <laughs> it's it's a very thick thick story uh i think the idea of faith is was really fascinating this film because uh you know there's three very different um faith and doubt i guess i is the best way to put it is um because there's three people in very different positions of either doubt and faith like i think it can go without saying regan and her mom they don't really seem the religious type um but there's a sense of doubt in them not necessarily from a religious sense but you know Regan's mom, which I, I believe her character's name was Chris. I can't remember. Yes. Um, yep. You know, she's doubt. It's something as simple as she's doubting her director in the beginning of the film. She's doubting <laughs> the direction she's being given in her life. She's also doubting herself because of, um, you know, her career. Her marriage fell apart. She's trying to relate to her daughter. So, you know, while it may not be faith in the religious sense, you know, there's an idea of uh, faith in herself. Uh, and then... Um, uh, Father Merrill, you know, okay. he's got his own thing going on at the beginning of the film, <laughs> where it's his his interactions with this this demon. Um, Bazuzu. <laughs> yes, I, I I I read the name when I when I was doing re- when I was just looking things up, uh, uh, and I was like, I don't even know how to pronounce this. Hopefully, Nick knows. I'm just gonna keep calling him Captain Howdy. Uh, yes, excellent, as he should be. You know, so he's he's dealing with his own thing because I I believe it didn't I don't remember if they said directly in the film or if they just hinted at it, but his exorcism in Africa failed. Am I, I am don't, I right here? I don't remember. I, I feel the, like maybe I'm. They said it, it took. They said it took several months, um, and that he almost died from it. I don't think I could be wrong, but I don't think they specified what the results were. Well, regardless, it was a, a difficult task for him. And I'm Absolutely. sure, I'm sure internally he he started to doubt himself. Like it shouldn't have taken him a couple months and his almost as a wife to save this person. And then you know, um, what was the, what was the younger priest's name? Karis. Uh, Karis, thank you, Karis. Who's one of the more I think the most fascinating character in the movie. He's you know got his own thing going on. Just unsure, if, you know, if he's fit for what he's doing. How do you go about getting an exorcism? Beg your pardon? If, um, if a person is, you know, possessed by a demon or something, how do they, how do they get an exorcism? Well, the first thing, I'd have to get them into a time machine and get them back to the 16th century. I didn't get you. Well, it just doesn't happen anymore, Miss McNeil. 
Well, since we learned about mental illness, paranoia, schizophrenia, all those things they taught me at Harvard, Miss McNeil, since the day I joined the Jesuits, I've never met one priest who has performed an exorcism, not one. Yeah, well, <clears throat> it just so happens that somebody very close to me is, is probably possessed and needs an exorcism. Father Karras is my little girl. And that's all the more reason to forget about exorcism. Why? I don't understand. To begin with, it could make things worse. Oh, how? Secondly, the church, before it approves an exorcism, conducts an investigation to see if it's warranted. That takes time. Oh, yeah. Meanwhile, it, your daughter... You could do it yourself. No, I couldn't. I need church approval, and that's rarely given. Uh, could you see her? Yes, I could. I could see her as a psychiatrist, but I can't oh, see her. Oh, not a psychiatrist. She needs a priest. She's already seen every fucking psychiatrist in the world, and they sent me to you. Now you're going to send me back to them? Jesus Christ, won't somebody help me? No, you don't me? see, you don't understand. Oh, Your daughter... God, can't you help her? Just help her! Uh, it's, it's interesting that, and I'm... I have not read the book. It's on my list of... It's on my, my book shame list, if you will. Um, Spinoff. <laughs> and I... Absolutely. And there's... Uh, it's, it's not uncommon when a film is based on a book, but it's hard to say exactly who the protagonist is in this. Um, many people think it's, it's Father Karras. Many people think it's Chris. Um, and... and you know, there doesn't have to be one right answer, but, uh, you know, it, it's not an ensemble piece, but it, there's also not a clear-cut protagonist, which yeah. makes for an interesting... And that that is interesting, too, because, like, I found myself being really on the fence about a lot of the characters. You know, there's times I liked Chris, but then there's other times it's like, you know, I don't really like her character too much. <laughs> um same thing of Karis. There's times where, like, I, I really like what he's trying to do, but then there's other times where it's like, you're just really whiny. <laughs> and then there's that Pazuzu guy who, like, sometimes he's cool and he seems really smart. He knows a lot, but sometimes he's a real dick. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and he's fucking with the, the, the Ouija board, and that's never good. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, I guess it's it's. I, I was gonna say it's unrelated, but it's not because it's about the movie. Um, I watched the theatrical cut. Which version did you watch? Okay, um, the one that I watched to refresh for this was the uh, no longer accurate, never seen before, uh, edited re-release um, director's cut, if you will. I actually saw the re-release of that. I think it was O one or O two, maybe. Um, a midnight screening on Halloween night in Madison, Wisconsin. It was right. amazing. <laughs> so we got the full spider walk down the stairs. I've seen the, that scene. I didn't realize it was from a it was from a specific cut of the film. So like I was watching the movie. It's like where's that spider walk scene? <laughs> so you saw the original theatrical nineteen seventy you probably said it in the intro. Seventy seventy three. Seventy three? I said early seventies but because I couldn't find a I couldn't think of a nice way to write that sentence, but uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's it's 1973, and, that, and that's the only reason I know that Linda Blair is 14 is because I did the math. <laughs> nice, because I think her character was actually 12, but she was 14 yes. at the time. Um, there's also an, an anecdote 
that Corinne has told about how uh, her mom, who was Catholic at the time, um, I believe, religious, um, went to see that film in the original release of it and walked out of the theater halfway through because <laughs> it wigged her out so much. And I and I believe it. It's and it's it's one of those cases where I wish. I could either take back my first viewing, like if I could have seen it when I was first getting into horror films, I feel like it would have been more impactful. And I, I feel like I need to preface. I'm not saying I didn't, I didn't enjoy the film. I really did. I thought it was a really well-made film, and I was really, impressed, uh, really impressed because I think this, this is still relatively early in William Friedkin's career. The performances he got out of these people and how, how um, daring some of the, some of the things he did, like some of the things oh, yeah. that came out of that fucking child's mouth. <laughs> Would not get past censors today. No, 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 no. Stick your cock up her ass, you motherfucking worthless cocksucker. Be silent. Uh, but I was really impressed by it, and um, I wish I could either go back in time to 1973 and see it then, or um, change my first viewing of it. Because like the reason that uh, my favorite film of all time, Halloween, works still for me is because I saw it sometime in middle school high school when i first started getting into horror films so that changed you know the way i see that film yeah i for me i kind of classify it in the in the same way that i think about night of the living dead where um though it's kind of you know very quickly lumped into the horror genre and it is you know there's clearly no denying that that's not what interests me about this film that's not why i like this film um, and th- uh, with the exception of a couple of, you know, jump moments where the phone will ring while he's, you know, Karis is listening to the to the recordings um, or, or things like that. There's n- there's not a whole lot of scare there, I, in my opinion. And, you know, clearly people will disagree with me on that. But um, what interests me is all of the stuff on once you get past, you know, I'm sitting here trying to get scared. That's where this story gets really interesting no it's to me it's more of a dread film and it's 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 amusing that um what you're saying about it being a horror film because uh both the director and the writer have like disavowed it as being a horror film and something happened here that was not a horror film blatty and i never spoke about making a horror film we talked about making a film which was about the mystery of faith I felt that the exorcist story was one of the most powerful things you could do in dealing with the mystery of faith and God's love and forgiveness. Uh, I, I certainly do not belong to any religious faith, but I never intended the exorcist to be a horror film. And now I recognize that it is. The public over 40 years <laughs> thinks of it as a horror film so i must be wrong <laughs> it's a friggin horror film i feel I, I don't remember the exact wording but william freaking calls it like a um a religious thriller which sure. you know everyone who anyone who's a horror fan knows that thriller is just a fancy word for a horror movie <laughs> um <laughs> And when they're trying to sound like it's not just naked women running through the forest. Exactly. Like, <laughs> it, it's, it's so many filmmakers like try to downplay what a horror film is because I, to this day, people like my mom, who watches horror films now because of me, whenever she like talks about a horror film, she's like, oh, it's not a, it's not a, 
It's 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 a it's a different horror film. It's not a a, a masked killer horror film. It's like that's a that's a slasher film, mom. It's <laughs> not all horror films are that way. But no, then also uh, William Peter Blatty. He also has said that. Uh, um, I, I read an article before we recorded from the Blaze, and uh, I'm skimming it right now. But uh, he said when he wrote the book, he said he had no intention of frightening the reader, which will take, I suppose, as an addition, uh, as an omission of failure on an almost stupefying scale. He said uh, <laughs> he was trying to write his thrilling, suspenseful detective story. <laughs> and it's also it's also amusing to, to note that Blatty, before he wrote this book, was doing comedy. Like he did, a, <laughs> he did an Inspector Clouseau comedy. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, oh, oh, I'm skimming the article to see exactly what he says. Um, uh, he said, when I, when I saw the novel's early reviews... Uh, for a time, I found myself prematurely in that unbalanced and tricky age for writers of comedy described by the great James Thurber as rollicking. Uh, this actually has nothing to do with what I'm trying to say. Um, <laughs> oh, he said, I do keep wishing, oh, ever so wistfully, and let's face it, hopelessly, that the exorcist be remembered at this time of the year for not being about shivers, but rather about souls. For then it would indeed be in the real and true spirit of Halloween, which is which is short for the eve of all hollows or all saints day. So like he thinks it's this big religious uh, piece of work and uh, he, he didn't write to be a horror film. Granted, I haven't read his book, so I don't know how he wrote it, but uh, there has to be something there if it was re envisioned in such a way. Sure. Cause like he, 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 he kind of pokes fun and he's like, I never wanted my book to be remembered for spinning heads and projectile vomiting. <laughs> Oopsie Daisy. <laughs> what are you gonna do? And and coming from an unknown independent filmmaker, I will say take it however you can get it. <laughs> exactly. Like sell out kids, sell out fast. What do you want to be known for? Right in an Inspector Clouseau film? <laughs> like doing the Pink Panther? That or, was my piece to resist. Or, you know, one of the most uh, uh the one of the most profitable horror films of all time. <laughs> I'm gonna take the money, like. <laughs> but I, pretty much, like his comments just remind me of like, I don't like it. I'm gonna take this money, but I'm not happy about it. <laughs> First we get the sugar, <laughs> then you get the power, and then you get the money. I think I got that backwards a little bit, but we're on the same. We got all the Im- we're on all the important bullet points in America. First you get the sugar, then you get the power, then you get the women. Do Do you have any uh, specific directions you want to go with it uh, regarding uh, well, your I reaction? T- I took a couple little notes. Let me uh, let me review. Well, I feel like we c- we've already talked about um, the themes. I feel like of faith and doubt, which I feel like we can. We could still elaborate on more if we wanted to as the podcast goes on. But then um, the two points I wanted to talk about is, you know, since I mentioned it didn't really scare me, but I still would like to talk about what worked in this film, what was effective, what, and even talk about what wasn't effective and what maybe didn't scare me. And then uh, I feel like, depending on how much we have to chime in, it could either be one of the biggest topics of the show or <laughs> one of the ones we drop the quickest. Um, the film being a metaphor for Reagan's sexuality. Oh, that I could talk about for a week and a half. It's it's very and and not just Reagan's, but um, 
the demon using uh, people's sexuality, knowing that it's kind of the weak point of of their faith. That Ooh. that's kind of this pivot point of you know that that God has imbued all of us with with this pleasure source, but don't use it because then you're all sinful beast bestial animals. Yeah, and it's interesting too because I want this is one of the reasons why I want to read the book is because I want to see how much of what happened in the movie well, actually and I William Peter Blatty wrote the movie. So <laughs> regardless it's it's it came from his brain because it's 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 a, it's based on off of a, a real life haunting but he changed the character from being a he changed the boy who it was originally a boy who was possessed and he changed it to a girl and of all the things that he that he has happening either you know um you know the most obvious one is um you know uh the demon inside of Regan uh soliciting sex from every male in the room and masturbating with the cross you know there, there there's a lot you can you can insinuate because think about it, it's a prepubescent girl going through not only a physical change but emotional change inside of her that she can't control. Yep. There seems to Absolutely. be an, some intention here, like to cha- to willingly change the character from a male to a female uh, from the original story, and then add all of these this subtext. Like, there's something here. Well, and and you could branch out on that and look at uh, Chris's character who is um, it, a, a strong woman in the 70s who is now a single parent but st- is still working um, it, I think there's a lot of not not necessarily criticism or commentary I don't even feel is the right word but but I think those were intentional choices to say to, to reflect the society's opinion of working women and if if you're out not in the home taking care of your child here's what could happen that that was a view that existed now whether or not i i really don't feel that the filmmaker or the writer were trying to say you know watch your kids you better get back in the kitchen otherwise they're gonna turn into demons but i think there was definitely an intent to point that out and and have that be an element I know, and it's interesting too because I, I they, it goes without saying, saying um, because it was never stated. But one thing I loved was that uh, I kind of, and I could be completely wrong, but I like movies like this where you can insinuate a lot. Um, I liked, I kind of got the vibe that Chris didn't know her daughter as well as she thought she did, um, and you know, just some of some of their interactions. The uh, I feel like there's times where Chris just didn't know. Like she was, she was impressed by her own daughter in a way, as if she's discovering things about her for the first time. Like the way she she reacts to her artwork, or the like how um, violently she yells at the father on the phone that he hasn't visited. Because I, I kind of got the the vibe that her father did a lot of the raising, and I'm kind of yeah. jumping all around. Sure, yeah, um, and you know, there's there's also this element of Hollywood where one of the the less dramatic characters, one of the sillier, lighter characters, is the film director, who is just a raging drunk who every even on set, whenever they cut to the director, he's, you know, kind of loose lipped and, and And he's just egging on the German guy. 
What was that? I would I would watch that movie all over again just to figure out the purpose of that scene. I think every, every scene in this film feels very intentional. It has a very specific purpose, and that one I just can't. No, and pin. It's, it's weird because like, if this were a a slasher film, it's easy to f- figure out why that scene's in there because it's building a a false lead. And like, oh, the German guy's got a reason, <laughs> right? Uh, and you know, like the first time he made a he made just underhanded comments, I could just throw it, just believe it. it's like, oh, that's just a a drunken comment by this weird English dude. But the fact that they had that scene of them in the kitchen together, just he's just egging him on, and then finally bursts out and calls him a Nazi, and and then it doesn't, it it never has a resolve. Yeah, like there's a resolve for the the drunk director who then gets shuffled out, but you could have taken that scene out and had that same element. The, the German houseman or whoever he was, he was, uh, an, one of Chris's employees or people who was there throughout popped up from time to time throughout the rest of the film as this ancillary character, like, yep, I'll check in the attic for the rats and I'll, you know, carry Raiden in after her tests at the hospital. That, that whole Nazi bit doesn't resolve at all and it really bugs me. No, and it's just, the director in itself is super strange because, like, I never caught the director's name until I looked it up because they kept talking, you know, they kept showing the director, but then they were talking about Chris's supposed lover, and I never made the connection between the two because they never introduced, I don't think they ever introduced the director by name, but then they talked about him whenever he wasn't in a scene. Right. <laughs> and they kept talking about this character, her lover, like, as in, in a way that was like, I feel like I should know who this character is, and I looked it up, and I was like, oh, shit, it's the director. What? They could have done a better job of explaining that, and then I kept thinking, that's Chris's lover? <laughs> Okay, this I've weird looking English dude. Right, I've seen it probably two dozen times, and I've never picked up on that either. <laughs> well, because they they specifically say like they say his name in full. I don't remember what it is at the moment, but they're uh, uh, Regan's asking about him, and uh, she uh, Chris is all like, um, "Oh, Regan's like you like him, don't you?" And it's like, "Oh, he hangs out. He comes around every once in a while because he's lonely." And it's like, "Okay, okay. No, they're fucking." Yeah, that's clearly. And then, like later on, like the, her, her, like her, her assistant, the the non-German assistant girl. Yes. Um, she's like, oh, I left him upstairs with insert director's name, and that's oh, when yeah. he gets murdered. Right, thrown out the window. Because, but they never say his name when he's actually in a scene. So I thought it was two <laughs> different people. Well, I mean, you know. She was clearly the reacher, and and he's clearly the uh, how, how she she roped that one. I'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> I do have to mention though, because like I, I was trying to figure out spatially uh, every time they show uh, the staircase, which the staircase, you know, that the director falls down falls down after getting thrown out a window. That's a great little uh, set piece. But uh, at the end, they have, um, is it, um, is it Meryl or Carrot? One of them is looking down the staircase. I think it was actually, I think it was Meryl. Um, it's like one of, the, one of the final shot of the movie. Um, now I'm blanking. Uh, I think it's the inspector. That... You're, you're right. Thank you. Thank you. The inspector watched the movie last week, so I'm trying to, like, 
summon these these thoughts. Right. Uh, I'm trying to like figure out like where's this house located that someone can fall should be thrown out a window and then down the stairs. Right. There's I think the the best place to put that together is when Karis jumps out the window. Yeah. Um, after he he takes Pazuzu into himself is because he's able to throw himself out the window and there's probably just a sidewalk um, and then these stairs and Georgetown set up in in a kind of an odd way like that it's if, you've, you've been there yep yeah, yeah it's uh, I'm about an hour and a half two hours from Georgetown so I visited a couple times when I'm in DC there's good restaurants. <laughs> Plus, you, you've probably done the Exorcist tour. I have not. It is on my to-do list since That's we have moved out here. Actually kind of surprising. <laughs> I've like, I would meet a friend out there, and we'd grab barbecue and a beer. So it wasn't like, hey, let's go check out the Exorcist stairs while we're, you know, it just never worked out. Or I, I have the kids on the mall in D.C. It's, hey, kids, you want to go see a staircase? Yes, Dad, you're my hero. I just want you to I want you to go to the staircase and take a picture of you like on at the bottom just laying on your stomach. <laughs> I'm sure all the locals would be looking out their window, oh Jesus fucking Christ, we got another one of these. You're like, shut up! I'm trying to take a picture at the exorcist stairs. <laughs> this is important. I have a podcast. <laughs> Oh my god, I don't have a I don't have a comeback to that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, tangent. Uh, um, well, uh, what did you make of the intro? It kind of it it had the same kind of separation as like the the monolith sequence in two thousand one. It was very removed from the rest of the film. It, it had a certainly a purpose, but I'd be really interested to hear your take on it. Not gonna lie, I was confused at first because, um, <laughs> but uh, having not seen this movie, and you know, I've seen clips of the film and everything. I honestly thought every, the entire film took place in either Georgetown or in that damn house. So I was not <laughs> expecting, you know, the uh, was it was it Iraq? Was it Iraq yep. in that opening scene? I was not expecting Iraq, and then you know, like processing <laughs> process shots of him standing with the sunset in the background, and like. And even more so, like, because like some films, when they'll do something like that, they'll they'll keep do as, uh, as little time as possible, you know, like enough to like whet your appetite. It's like, oh, what is this spooky stuff? And then like cut to the main story. They were there for for I want to say they dug in. There's like at least five, maybe eight minutes, and I was like, does this really how the movie begins? I I, <laughs> I, I like I rented it off of Amazon. And I like paused the movie because it'll bring up the title. It's like, did I rent the right movie? <laughs> is this this isn't like Indiana Jones like twenty seven where Max von Sydow finally replaces Harrison Ford. And... But no, like, I got to check to make sure I was watching the right movie. It's like, okay, okay, it's the right movie. I um, I'm in. Okay. <laughs> uh, and then there's like, the funny thing is like I've seen a lot of the famous images from this movie. I've seen. Um, you know, I've seen Regan's, you know, fucked up face. I've seen, I've seen that quick still shot of Captain Howdy. I've, uh, it's not even in the cut I watched, but I've seen st- still <laughs> grabs of uh, the spider walk. I have never seen a demon with a pe- with a giant penis before. Why have I never seen that image before? <laughs> that giant was snake of, penis, I believe. That was one of the most frightening <laughs> images in this movie, was that giant snake penis demon. And then when he came back near the end of the movie, oh, that 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 freaked me out a little. I guess if I could say anything like unnerved me, it's like, damn, the demon with the snake penis. That got me. 
<laughs> Especially, it was also weird too because like I knew about the whole dynamic of uh, uh, an old priest and a young priest mainly because of Austin Powers too. <laughs> right. Attention, Moon Unit Zappa to firing station. Initiation sequence in progress. Okay, all right. All I asked for was a frickin' rotating chair, okay? Oh, okay. Okay, okay, okay. Getting a little afraid. I need an old priest and a young priest. The power of Christ compels you. The power of Christ compels you. Whoa, hello. Okay. Sick as a dog now. Okay. Okay. Essentially, everything I know about this movie came from other movies. <laughs> um, <laughs> As well, it should be. <laughs> uh, but like, I didn't know this. I didn't know that. Uh, know this was Father Merrill. I had a. I had a suspicion. And it's because a funny. I don't. It's surprising I've not seen this movie because I've done research on the makeup tactic, like on the makeup that uh, Dick Smith did in this film. Because like the actor who played Father Merrill, he was like only like forty years old. Okay. He was not an old man, but that was a convincing old old age makeup. And the reason I kind of thought it was uh, was Merrill because it, with that bright sunshine shining on him, I could kind of see like his neck looked a little bit like an appliance. Sure. But that was the only clue I had that that might that might be Merrill. <laughs> I do have to say uh. though, like. That's like what 30 40 years ago and that makeup still holds up. Oh, absolutely. Something that really stuck out to me on this particular watching of the film was that when um Terrace is having his like nightmare hallucination um where with his mother coming up the subway stairs and back down. His mother dying out of nowhere too confused me cuz like I I was like how much time just passed cuz didn't he just see her? Right. I was yeah. so confused. Like, I feel like well, I feel like they sped up the the Merrill story arc so much. Like, here's the mother. Here's the mother in a home. Here's the mother dead, with all within three bing, scenes bing, of each boom. other. Yeah. So in that in that nightmare sequence he has, there are several visual references and some outright stills from the imagery that we see in the beginning. Uh, when Max von Sydow is in, in that room with the clock that stops, that clock is in mm-hmm. his hallucination. Um, there's obviously the flash of of the demon's face in it, and a, and some other imagery. The I believe that Mesopotamian statue is also in his vision. Just quick cuts, and it's easy to think of it as just kind of visual filler. But how is this character? having these visions from the other priests uh experiences no exactly yeah i thought um and i feel like we, we've been we've been touching on karis a little bit but um um i wanted to know more about his character because like he's a psychiatrist and a priest who works at a university but <laughs> lives in a dorm room right. who used to be a boxer <laughs> He definitely doesn't fit a stereotype. This no, isn't not at like, all. This I'll, isn't the priest that walks into a bar. <laughs> and like, I was like, uh, a lesser filmmaker would have like had him boxing Captain Howdy at the end, and I'm glad <laughs> that didn't happen. Um, yes. Though no, I would like to see that fan film. <laughs> but no, I think it's um, 
I actually thought uh, I kind of gravitate towards the boxer storyline quite a bit because um, for me, it's it uh, it says a lot about his character because to be a boxer, you have to have a lot of dedication. You have to have a lot of um, belief in what you're doing because no one wants to get punched in the face for free. <laughs> but yet you have to if you want to ever get anywhere with boxing. You have to have a lot of um, you need to, you need to have a lot of focus. You need to have a lot of drive, and you need to really believe in what you're doing very similar to being a priest now think about it i don't know if they ever said why he stopped being a boxer but for whatever reason he gave up on that he moved to i don't know if psychiatry or if if the priesthood came first but he moved to that and he was struggling with that as well i think it says a lot about his character that he needs he um i don't want to say he was focused i don't know the right word i'm looking for but like he has a hard time sticking with things, and he and it wasn't until this uh, until this exorcism came up that I feel like his instilled belief in what he's doing came back out because he didn't think he was any help to any of these any of the people that he was helping like with psychiatry, and you know he couldn't even help his own mother, right? And and, and there was a point in the exorcism where he had given up on that, where uh, the other priest had said uh you know he recognized how flummoxed he was by what the demon was telling him about his mother and and pushing on all those sensitive points and he says you know what you're you are no help to me get out of here um and and he does which is another point in this character's story where he gave up on something that is important yeah and then like he eventually I guess I'd equate it to him finding his faith um, when he had... What, how do you pronounce the demon's name again? Uh, Pazuzu! Pazuzu! <laughs> when he had Pazuzu take take him instead of the girl. Um, I had a point I was trying to make. I'm just, I'm, I, <laughs> I just lost it. Um, it. It was his redemption story. Yes. I feel like... I, I, the, uh, Meryl even has a line about that, too, because, like... You know the whole the whole idea of the exorcism. I feel it comes down to, um, I, th- I don't know if I said I don't know if I said it off mic or if I said at the beginning of the podcast, but evil existing could be considered proof that God doesn't exist. But since everything isn't, but since there's good existing in the world, you can then make the claim that God does exist. And Karis asks, well, why would god allow this to happen to a child or why would the demon take a child and i don't remember meryl's answer but it essentially came down to the idea of trying to shake your faith in what you believe in yeah, if something is what if, the if something seems happen, to be you, <laughs> you know <laughs> if something can happen to an innocent you know then it kind of changes everything you you know and understand yeah absolutely i was gonna say something oh uh Karis being both the psychologist and the the priest i like i feel like once uh Raiden and chris had gotten to this point in trying to figure out what was happening to her they told her to see a, a psychiatrist and that didn't help um but i also feel like had she just gone to a just a standard clergy member i don't think that would have helped either i think what she needed and what chris needed was the combination of the two and 
there's another theme in the film where um, the doctors are telling her that what's wrong with her is in her brain, but the brain is just an organ where they're talking about the, the physicality of a human being's mental condition where the spiritual psychologist covers kind of the the idea of what happens inside you your brain more from the soul perspective um and and the doctors couldn't fix her with the pills and the machines um and and even the psychologists who were still seeing it as an organ with something broken still talked about the exorcism as a placebo effect mm -hmm. um it it took the the priest who was also a psychologist to fix her yeah, and it was actually interesting, too, because um, when they're talking about the exorcism, you know, like, like you said, they kind of referred to it as a placebo effect. If you believe that this will work, it will work. You know, it wasn't like like other films, like, say, like The Conjuring or something, where, like, they treat this 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 act as a factual thing. Like, oh, this is, this is of course, how you get rid of a demon. It, they treat it as, like, an act of faith. Uh, and, it, and it's a really interesting contrast because here they are treating this this thing like as an act of faith when there really is uh, a, a person possessed. But at the same time, they didn't. I don't think they ever specified. They said um, if you really if you if you have faith and you believe that this exorcism will work, it'll work. They didn't say who had to believe. So uh, so Karis at the end finding it within himself to essentially believe in God again, believe in what he's doing is the reason that he saves Reagan. Absolutely. That's, that's really great. Something that has always not sat well with me with this film. And I think we're starting to hone in on it is the fact that the, the tap water that Karis uses in the beginning works, that it's not holy water. I, it's hard to make a case that, she isn't actually possessed by a demon, but why then does the holy water or the the pretend holy water work so effectively? Did it work though, or was or was Pazuzu calling his bluff? That, I can't I can't that, think of reason why Pazuzu would do that, but they do. Uh, he does say that uh, the demon is a liar, but will mix truth in just to throw you off. Because if you know that the demon's always lying, then you always know, you, you always have it figured out. If you know that that demon is going to mix truth in, then, then you never know how to gauge it. And the timing of that holy water bit is right before they actually request the, the exorcism. And uh, after going out and explaining to Chris that it was just tap water, he says that that's not going to bode well for getting this exorcism. So there is a, a thought process there where Pazuzu knows this and reacts that way in an attempt to avoid the exorcism. Hmm. That actually all now, makes complete sense. I, I, I can't say that it's accurate. I think it's a bit of a stretch because there's really no evidence to say that Pazuzu knows any of these things or or that Reagan knows I, any of these things. I guess the reason why I, I'd go on a whim and say Pazuzu does know this is because Meryl has dealt with Pazuzu before, so I feel like this is not the first time Pazuzu has... I've said his name three times in a sentence, and it feels really strange. Um, now he's uh, going to appear in your house. <laughs> probably. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. I didn't say it in front of a broken mirror. We're fine. 
um, Pazuzu has dealt with the church before, and I feel like a demon like this isn't. I feel like a demon like this is is, is all knowing in the sense that um, he's aware of more than just what's happening around whatever host body he's taking. I feel like he's aware of everything else around him, so he's become aware of what steps Meryl would have to go through to get, or Karis, what steps Karis would have to go through to get an exorcism approved. Because the, the, the exorcism um, in the time that this film was made kind of felt like this... Um, like in my mind, like uh, someone requests an exorcism, and like the archbishop or the archdiocese, whatever, would just kind of roll their eyes and be like, "Okay, but only if you can answer these questions three. <laughs> like it's it's something that they'll do, but they really don't want to. So it has to be a good case. And Pazuzu was hoping that he can make a case that it's not. But what I was trying to figure out, what what was Pazuzu's goal? What was his end game? Right. Like what was it just to take over Reagan? Was it eventually get her soul? Was uh, that's what I couldn't figure out. Like what did he want with this child? What was his end game? Yeah, some people say it was to get Karis. I think there are some uh, interesting things that they're doing in the new TV series, which we haven't hit on yet. I haven't that, watched it yet, but now that I've seen the movie, I can. Yeah, uh, where you could make a taste to say that. Pazuzu actually wanted Chris. Um, you were you were talking about him knowing things beyond you know that room. And while I absolutely agree with you, I think it then becomes very interesting to consider with with each thing with with each action that the demon takes. Why does it do it that way? Because if it is this all knowing demon, he clearly could summon the voice of of Karis's dead mother and knows all the backstory to that but why doesn't it do more then because it clearly has the power to do more and there's this interesting series of moments where early on Karis asked the demon in one of his first meetings uh the demon asked to remove the straps and he says well if you're so powerful why don't you just do it and the demon says you know, oh, that'd be too vulgar a display of my power. I shouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want to do that. And you hear the demon say that and you go, okay, you're clearly full of shit. You can't do that. If you could, also, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you just remove the straps and go out and, you know, take over the world? Hello, Reagan. I'm a friend of your mother's. I'd like to help you. You want to loosen the straps, huh? I'm afraid you might hurt yourself, Reagan. I'm not Reagan. I see. Well, then, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Damien Carras. And I'm the devil. Now, kindly undo these straps. If you're the devil, why not make the straps disappear? That's much too vulgar display of power, Carras. But yeah. then later on in the exorcism, the demon does it. The demon does, like, just kind of, with the power of its will, tears through those straps. Yeah, and actually, I was, I was going to comment on that as well earlier, where uh, I think at one point, he, uh, the demon made a drawer slam or open or something, and Karis was like, was that you? <laughs> Do another was, one. And he's like, in eh. time. Yep. Eh. And We're just going to play with you. I thought the same thing. It's like, can this, 
like was it the demon or like was he like was the demon mustering up every ounce of its power just to make that move because like i imagine if you were a demon and you're possessing someone the act of possession and keeping a hold on a person takes up a lot of whatever power you have i can't imagine it's just as simple as jumping in and living in that body i feel like since you have a person who's trying to fight for the control of their own body trying to keep them subdued must also be wearing you down Dudes to have some nine volts under the bed. Exactly. <laughs> but I think all of this does lend credence to the idea that Pazuzu wanted Terrace or uh, UT, uh, Max von Saito's character, the Meryl. older Meryl, um, where he was. I hope I have that, his name right. <laughs> <laughs> that would make sense, where he's possessing the girl in order to draw in these other people that he wants that he couldn't get access to. Because I feel you know, like in another way, you know, if if you were a demon possessing a man of faith, a man of the cloth is like, it's like that's like upper echelon shit right, right there. That's so, a gold star day. <laughs> so I imagine like he, um, he probably did a lot of this to egg someone like a Meryl or Karasan. Probably more so Karas, because Karas is the more naive one. Karas is the one who would put his body on the line. Right. I don't see Meryl doing that. And in that way, while, you know, it, it's easy to look at the end of the film as Karas won, Karas saved Reagan, uh, and redeemed himself, based on this line of thinking, you could say, well, the demon also won. The the demon got what it wanted, corrupted Terrace to the point that it was able to take over him. Yeah. Bummer. It's kind of a it's fucked up ending, man. <laughs> if you think about it. It's beautiful. Yeah. I can't Ever, remember. It, I can't remember. It's a win-win. <laughs> I can't remember what happened to Meryl at the end of the film. Um, Terrace walks out after... The uh, Meryl says, you know what, you're no good to me here. You're actually kind of implies that he's compromising the success of this. Uh, Terrace goes out and has his little meltdown and then walks back in. And Meryl is just stone dead on the side of the bed. Damn. So at, at some point after he left, after he abandoned yet another important thing in his life, uh, something really nasty happened in the process and and who knows maybe you know again based on this line of thinking maybe pazuzu could have killed him a long time ago but chose that moment in order to further break terrace down yeah because like when i um i never thought thought too much of the pazuzu character like when i was watching it uh but now after analyzing it with you it's it's kind of interesting to think that he is this this creature that it didn't sink in with me when i saw it in the movie but you saying it later on that the demon lies sticks more with me now than when i saw it in the movie because you know it's i hear you know it it can be interpreted as such a cliche oh the demon's gonna lie don't listen exactly because the exorcist you know created a a, essentially a subgenre of horror films um that you know, while they existed, they weren't done at the level that the Exorcist did them at. And you know, like you go see The Conjuring or Ouija or Insidious, you hear lines like that all the time, but there's never a moment where they um, it pays off. You never like, right? Like, of course, the demon lies, but you know, something as simple as it lying about being burned by holy water to stop an exorcism it it just didn't sink in with me because i've seen that line used as a cliche more than actually a storytelling device 
Right. And and I think that that's not the important part of the sequence. It's the follow-up line of him mixing the truth in. Mm-hmm. That that is really the the really important part because then you can't trust before you you know before that second line you know you can't trust the demon. Yep. But after that, but he's also going to mix the truth in. You don't know whether or not you can trust him at any point. And and there are clear examples of the demon both lying when you know that the demon's lying and when the demon is telling the truth and you know that the demon is telling you the truth. So then when he says anything. Of, of any significance, you can't trust it one way or the other. No. Damn. It, it makes the times that you don't have evidence in the story of whether or not it's truth or a lie to all of a sudden really fuck with your idea of what the the motivations of the character are and what the point of the film is. And um, no, I, I, I definitely feel this is going to be one of those films that I'm going to watch a second time and just be blown away by. And like I said, not to say I didn't, I did, I didn't l- l- really like the film the first time. It's just like there's a lot to unpack. Absolutely. And I think that's, uh, you know, one of the interesting, not to pat ourselves on the back, uh, but one of the interesting elements of this particular angle on a film review podcast is you you can get lots of people talking about films and that's fine, but this is an angle that I haven't heard anyone else talk about a film at before. So I don't think that's to our detriment. I think it's really interesting to have somebody who's seen it and somebody who this is the first time. So you can find out what are those first impressions of a watching of the, of a great film versus the things that you just assume that everyone sees mm-hmm. over and over again. Like you were saying in, in our episode about the lost boys about, you know, we were talking about the fashion and whatnot and how that's just part of it for you. That's not something that you even, re- you know, it's fun and you see it and you take it in as part of the whole thing, but it doesn't stand out as much as it did for me saying it out of context 30 years later. No, exactly. And like one thing I found, um, I, I, the reason I was, one of the reasons I was looking forward to watching this film is one, to knock it off my, my shameless, but then two, um, because you know, I follow on Facebook. I you know I follow a lot of different uh, horror film pages, and um, you know the, the 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 things I see most often are people complaining that all horror movies now suck, and <laughs> that uh, you know uh, they don't make great films anymore, like The Shining and The Exorcist, and like uh, I'll occasionally you know jump on there uh, and be like, well, what did you love so much about The Exorcist or The Shining that these films aren't doing? And you know, I have not not haven't seen The Exorcist, but really liking The Shining, and The Shining being one of those movies that I appreciated more and more every time I watched it. Every no one can. It's funny, like it's almost like I this is a good movie because everyone says it is, so I have to love this movie. Right. So whenever I ask people like, well, what did you love about The Shining? What did you love about The Exorcist? No one oh, can that, ever give me an answer. The part where he like takes the axe through the door and says, "Here's Johnny. That was great, man." <laughs> Because like the things I love about The Exorcist are not are not The Exorcist, um, The Shining are not things that most horror fans like in movies. Because a uh, little bit of a tangent here, like in a lot of ways, The Shining's an art film. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, but yet, a lot of people I see who love The Shining, uh, whenever like an art film comes out, like say Nicholas Winding Refn makes a film, they like shit on it right away and it's like this art <laughs> film bullshit. It's like, well, that's what The Shining is. And a lot of, and in some ways, that's what The Exorcist is. The Exorcist, uh, The Exorcist hints at more than it ever says. 
Absolutely. If, if The Exorcist would have said everything that we we just talked about, it might not have been as interesting a movie because it left enough open for us to infer. Um, and I guess the point I'm making is I'm, it's it's nice for me to talk about this film that's considered one of the greatest horror films of all time and actually be able to talk about it and not just be like, this film is great because it's on the top ten list of best films ever list. Right. It, it's interesting starting to talk about The Shining in particular and, and the those elements of it because I drew um, a parallel while I was watching it this time for the first time um, of when... Uh, Jack Torrance is bouncing that rubber ball, walking around that empty mm-hmm. hotel, and the that rhythm of the bop 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 just over and over again. And he's walking around, and they use a similar device in this, um, particularly in that beginning sequence with the hammers and the pickaxes pounding rhythmically over and over again, yeah. wearing you down. Um, and then they also echo that again in the hospital sequences with those big machines scanning your brain. They do it several times with that dot, 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 just really intense, repetitive sounds um, that again, those those subtle layers of of tension and 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 flavor and texture that you get in these kind of more artsy films that you don't get in in a lot of other horror films. And actually, I'd like to talk about the music for a moment. Um, it's really interesting because uh, I didn't realize this until I checked the uh, the credits because I'm not super in the know about um, classical music. Because I kept thinking whenever I watched the film, or when I, or as the film was progressing, I should say, um, you know, the tubular bells theme would come on, which is a great theme. It didn't make it didn't match the rest of the music in the movie. It right. almost seemed like it was a score from actually Amanda's the one who was like. Um, she's like, this sounds a lot like John Carpenter's Halloween. When was this movie made? And I was like, uh, a couple years beforehand. And she's like, hmm. <laughs> uh, because, you know, the tubular bell theme almost has like a synthy quality to it, too. And it's yep. really chaotic and f- frantic. But then there's just classical music through most of the rest of the film. And the way the classical music's performed does not match the energy of tubular bells. And in a weird way, it almost is kind of like disorienting but not in a bad way but i feel like in a way that kind of works i don't know yeah rhythmically uh it's a very rhythmic uh piece as is the the halloween theme very simple melody over and over again with this with this drive to it that kind of makes you feel like something is always behind you or there's this thing or something just in front of you that there's this constant motion towards yeah, actually, kind of remind me of the theme from Suspiria as well, um, and it's, it's just it's it's one of those themes that like I knew that theme before I saw the movie, but now there's so much more weight behind it because the theme in itself is just kind of like spine chilling, uh, spine tingling, and um, they trying both. really hard to not say spine tingling. Tingling. <laughs> well, you said it anyway, so it doesn't really work. Um. I didn't say I'd be successful. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I liked the the uh, the the mix match of music because it didn't sound like I'm trying to like put into words what I'm trying to say. It didn't sound like there was like this uniformity. Sure. Yeah. And and a a lot of films they didn't overscore the film. No. It was pretty minimalist in terms of their music application. Um, 
That's actually one thing I, I, I like quite a bit is William Freakin was n- uh, much like Martin Scorsese is not afraid to use silence. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, lots of long takes, wide shots. Um, doesn't feel the need to overscore them. Like one of the more pleasant shots in the movie is just Karis running, doing his track and field run near the middle of the movie. I don't think there's any score. It's just, you know, um, the sound of nature around him. And, you know, he's, he, like I said, he's just not afraid to yeah. let the, the, the scene. Beat, the beat of his feet that emulate the pickaxes in the beginning and his heavy breathing, <laughs> that'll, you know, that uh, you could, you know, I'm sure get too deep into it, but could emulate, you know, the the kind of tension that you see in the exorcism scenes in the future but yeah just lets that tell the story versus you know well, and especially a bunch of extra and especially up up in the room like i could be wrong and um but i don't feel like i remember there being any music really up in that room uh because the sound design and the things that pazuzu is saying that's chaotic enough to score yeah. it would just be overdone or it would be too on the nose to the point where it's there's no point in it. You can tell that there's so many layers to the way that they built up the demon's voice. They have that, you know, I, I guess you call it ADR or voiceover or whatever of, of the that isn't Reagan's voice speaking out of her body. But there's also this kind of moaning that isn't a single voice. It's several like dirty crack moanings going on whenever she's speaking and as the exorcism builds there's just kind of this constant racket from the demon as they do things like scream the power of christ compels you again very rhythmically very you know steady wearing the idea of wearing the demon down little by little with this constant constancy um yeah that that is all you need for the audio in a scene like that. No, and it, and it could also be a stretch too. But like the idea of um, rhythm just works with the like with um, like we're just in New Orleans and where we learned a lot about voodoo culture and you know rhythms and beats and drumming played a big part into that. So the idea of like building a sound design through rhythm when you're dealing with this topic of possession makes sense. You know something because the rhythm will pull whatever evil force you have out yeah no i i absolutely agree i don't think it's a stretch at all i think there are very clear themes uh, of rhythm in this and very steady constant repetitive rhythms that uh acts as the soundtrack to the movie well i agree well is there anything else we wanted to touch on with the exorcist i feel like uh, I feel like I've touched on everything, with, uh, and I feel like if I keep going, I might start repeating myself a little too much. <laughs> um, so is there anything else that you feel, you know, since you obviously very love, really love this movie, that you want to touch on before we talk about upcoming episodes? I think I better call it, too. I think, if, yeah, if I continued, I'd start to get too focused. On, I could... I get really excited about the amount of um, metaphor in this film and uh, things like when, in that opening sequence, when uh, Meryl's character, uh, as he's being affected by these things that he's seeing in Iraq, um, he's almost run over by, by a black horse, which evokes revelations in the horseman, the dark horse, um, 
sequence uh, that just just every little bit seems so well thought out. There's so much thickness to every single event in this film, um, and I could do weeps and weeps on on the kind of stuff that gets me deeped out. But yes. Let's uh, talk about future episodes. Okay, well, and we say future episodes because we don't know what order uh, we're going to record these <laughs> or what order they're going to get released in. Because I think we've mentioned before, we are trying to bank episodes just so that way we can kind of have a stockpile of them um, when we need them. Because, uh, Nick, you're moving into a new house. I'm newly <laughs> married. Christmas is right around the corner. So things are getting a little crazy. Um, as of the recording, this I think might be our third-ish episode. We don't yeah. know if we're going to release it necessarily in that order. But one thing we want to try to do is we want to try to do at least one Christmas episode to be released during Christmas. Um, since uh, I think we've kind of agreed on a, a bi-weekly schedule once we start releasing them, which yeah. means we'd have to do it sooner than later. <laughs> um, or if anything, if it's like... It's still in December. If it's like right after Christmas, but like between New Year's, I'm cool with that. Um, People need something to do that week. Yeah, exactly. Um, I know um, since the next pick would be one that you haven't seen, our, uh, um, we had talked about doing Black Christmas, if we do yes. one of our Christmas episodes, because you haven't seen it. It's one of my, not only one of my favorite Christmas films, but just one of my favorite movies in general. I think it's a near perfect movie. Um, you had picked for me the family. I Stone. did. Yes, uh, I'm. I am a sucker for Christmas movies. Uh, there's something magical about them that I, there's plenty of terrible, terrible Christmas movies. But when they're done right, they just sink right into my heart and make me ball like a seven year old. Um, and this is one of those. It's a. It's a really beautiful film. I think in so many ways and people, this is one of those films that really seems to split people. They either love it or they hate it. Well, so my I mom be, loves it. So I will be very interested to see which side of the fence you come down on. Funny thing is if we couldn't come, if we couldn't have come to, to terms on like what Christmas episode we're do, like we were doing, I was just going to say we watched uh, Ernest Saves Christmas. <laughs> Cause I've never seen it. I haven't either. And I've seen it on my Netflix. Like you yep. may also like, <laughs> um, and then I think after that, we're going to start going back to regular episodes. And, um, my pick for that would be, uh, for you, Buffy, the vampire slayer. So. Nice. I am looking forward to it. <laughs> so, um, until next time, uh, this has been uh, the Shameless Picture Show podcast. I'm getting really good at saying that because <laughs> it's kind of a mouthful. Uh, and thanks for listening, everyone. Bye.